With the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act now law, many in Washington, D.C. are saying that its provisions reducing pricing by $80 billion annually in Medicare for drugs near the end of their patent life will not have any negative impacts on the U.S. biopharma ecosystem. Enter Amitabh Chandra, the Director of Health Policy Research at the Harvard Kennedy School for Government and a Professor of Business Administration at Harvard's Business School. Dr. Chandra has been sounding the alarm of the unintended consequences of the many pricing bills that have been emerging from both the Trump and Biden administrations, as well as the U.S. Congress. I'm Dwayne Schultes, and on this Vital Health Podcast, I'm very pleased to have a chance to sit down with Amitabh Chandra. Amitabh, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much for your time today, sir. Dwayne, the pleasure is all mine. I'd like to turn back the clock a bit and touch on a few things that have led us to where we are today and what was just passed the Inflation Reduction Act. If we go back to the previous Congress, there was a bill called HR3, which targeted up to 250 drugs in Medicare's Part B and D and would have used an international pricing average of drugs in Europe, Australia, Japan, Canada to set U.S. drug pricing in the government. Why would the Congress want to implement a bill based on foreign prices and medicines for U.S taxpayers and people getting drugs in Medicare? I think the answer is simple. Congress is elected by U.S. taxpayers. And those U.S. taxpayers, regardless of their political affiliation, want our prices to be attached to foreign prices because they view the discounts that other countries are getting as being unfair. I think the intuition goes something like this. A lot of voters are thinking, hey, why am I paying $1,000 for this medicine that sells for $200 in Greece? It's the same medicine. If we just required that manufacturers charge one price around the world, I would get my medicine that cost me 1000 for 200 And I think what's wrong about that intuition is that if you force one price around the world, that price is going to be much closer to the U.S. price. <laughs> and so then the Greeks are not going to be paying 200 They'll be paying closer to 1000 and we'll still be paying 1000 But, you know, it's not like – I don't blame people. This is not the world that they inhabit. And so they tend to think that if Congress were to mandate something – mandate that our prices be like foreign prices, we'll get the foreign price. We published a study a year ago that's starting to get, what's interestingly, it's starting to get a lot of traction now. What we found was for every 10% change in pricing between US, Europe, and Japan, you would see, for example, a 20% reduction in venture capital. Uh, you would see a 9% reduction in biotech creation in startups. I mean, huge impacts. And we've seen in Europe, Europe in 1980, according to Arthur Damrich at Harvard, uh, published a study, you know, Europe was doing 60, 65% of the creation. Now Europe's down around 20, 30%. So we know what happens. What would be the impact in the U.S. if we start cramming down pricing artificially? Where does this go? At the end of the day, the investors who bring young biotech companies to market, the LPs, if you will, are all the big institutional endowments in the United States. And those endowments, those actors, it could be Fidelity, it could be CalPERS, they're looking for returns. So right. if they don't get their returns from the pharmaceutical industry, they will look to another industry. That, that capital is not going to stay in right. the pharmaceutical industry. 
I think your point about U.S. innovation versus the rest of the world innovation is something that a lot of people don't understand. Even when European companies do innovation in the life sciences, they're often thinking primarily about the U.S. market. Yeah. Right? So if you take, we're in Switzerland, but if you look at sales for Novartis, sales for Roche, the Swiss pharmaceutical giants, their largest customer will be the United States. Two weeks ago, the CEO of Novartis came out in a press release and said, we're going to focus now wholly on the U.S. market. Novartis has had a position that they're going to be a more global-focused company, sort of a good neighbor approach. Um, and they said, basically, now, you know, we're focused on the U.S. They may drop out of the top 10. I mean, it just, it's amazing how quickly these fortunes have changed and how now they're just saying, look, yeah, we're, we're really focused on the U.S., period. That's right. That's right. So I think the U.S. is 25% of world GDP, but it is much more than 25% of the pharmaceutical market. Oh, yes. So it is not surprising that large companies look to U.S. payers to determine whether or not a product is going to be profitable. On top of that, there's, a, there's another great thing that the United States does, which is it finances a disproportionate share of the basic science that actually results in these medicines. So it's not just the U.S. payer paying a high price for the medicine. Even before the medicine was invented, the American government invests more money through organizations like the NIH doing basic science research that no company is going to do and so if you look at basic science output around the world, the United States accounts for 55% of all the basic science output. So these would be discoveries like CRISPR or discoveries like mRNA that then go on to become pharmaceutical companies. Carti originated in Israel. The IP came out of the Weissman Institute in Israel. Then it came to NIH and several you know, startups here, the creatives, the research grants, the partnership grants came directly into Kite and Novartis on their CAR-T portfolios. I mean, it's a classic example of how public and private need to work together in order to commercialize and develop arguably one of our leading technologies. There's no question. Right. And it's, to your point, it's technologies, right? So if yeah. you look at all the technologies that we use during the COVID epidemic, not just the vaccines, but I'm talking about PCR technology, a lot of that was developed, the basic science was developed in the United States. So you know, if you want, if you come from, you know, where I come from, which is I think that the goal of public policy should be to try to reduce human disease and human suffering around the world. I think where that takes me to is you want even more generous funding of basic science. You don't want payers to just pay for things regardless of value. But when the drug is valuable, if the drug is valuable, you want the payer to pay a price that would actually induce the innovator to bring that drug to market, not a price that's so low that the innovator says, yeah, you know what, I'm just going to run a scooter company. You stated in an article in BioCentury about a year ago, and I'm going to quote, one of the flaws in CBO's model, the Congressional Budget Office model, is its failure to recognize that reducing revenues from highly profitable drugs will deter venture capitalists from making high-risk investments in biotech. It's those tail effects of the revenue, that those profits that rest on the balance sheets of the company, they're not just sitting there and rolling around in it like Drake Duck in his basement like with <laughs> Huey, Dewey, and Louie looking at him. Can you give a description of why did the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, not understand that in the HR3 analysis? They made an assumption out of convenience 
and, and, and just to go back to the question that you asked, when drug price negotiation via the Inflation Reduction Act comes in, it does reduce investment decisions by firms, but it only reduces investment decisions made after phase one. Right. And I think what you and I are saying is that, look, if you look at the ecosystem, there are a bunch of investors who make very large investments before phase one. They're called venture capitalists. They're called angel investors. They're called seed investors. And their average investment size is about $5 million on average. Right. Yeah. Small investments. Yeah. But without the small investment, the big investment wouldn't have been made and, later. And to you and I sitting here, $5 million is small. Right, <laughs> right, right. Just to be clear, in, the, in our in our world, five million is small. Yeah, exactly. To most people, they're going what? Right, right. No, in our world, five million is small. I mean, you know, when when BMS buys Celgene for seventy five billion dollars, you mean that that might get my attention, but five million is very small. And I think what CBO needs to know is how does that very early investment respond to returns, financial returns not just five years away or 10 years away, but maybe 15 or 20 years away. To be honest, we don't know that number. But not knowing the number doesn't mean that it's zero. CBO assumes that when it doesn't know, because it doesn't know this number, it's going to assume this number is zero. Right. And my view is it's actually a really big number. I don't know how <laughs> big it is, but it's a big number. Big number doesn't is not the same as zero. Yeah. So CBO has almost definitely understated the number of medicines that will not come to market at as a result of the IRA, simply because it's ignored this very early stage piece of it. I just met a client last week in Europe who said, wow, you know, your guys are estimating by investor behavior that you're going to lose 80% of this market if prices drop by 60%. That's that's not possible. I'm like, well, yeah, it is. If you lose 60% of your revenue, you don't lose 60% of the drugs. It actually, the math works out. People just don't understand how the, it will work. It's very bizarre to me that people see this as a linear relationship when it's not. Tail risks are nonlinear because you're blowing out the actual risk capital, the stuff that's going to take a punt on the most risky, least likely stuff. Right. And I think what you're talking about is the fact that if you look at the drugs that the government will negotiate prices for, the rule in the IRA is that the government will negotiate the prices of drugs on which it spends a lot of money. Well, what are those drugs? Those are going to be drugs that are used by a lot of people. At the most successful assets. Right, right. Yeah. the most successful assets. Either they were incredible drugs, which is why <laughs> we spent a lot on them, or they benefit a ton of people, which is why we spent a lot of them. So it's, it's, you know, what it's doing is it's also changing incentives. It's not just reducing the number of drugs. That's an incomplete wrong metric to use. It's also going to shape the kinds of innovation that are coming to market because what we're essentially doing is we're putting a tax on manufacturers that make drugs that benefit lots of people. Right. With big impact. With big impact, right. Yeah. So that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. Like that is that is exactly what we don't want in this industry. Right? Now, you know, let's talk about the IRA. You know, it 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 has two good ideas in it at its core. The first good idea in it is that it's trying to reduce patient cost sharing in Medicare Part B. And the out-of-pocket caps right. are and so desperately needed. Right. And it's so knocked that down needed. to $2,000. So that's fantastic. A-plus to Congress on that. But, you know, it does nothing about the out-of-pocket in Part B. So this is B as in beta, which is you know, where all the expensive infusion drugs are. Oncology products. Oncology products, where Aduhelm, the Alzheimer's drug, 
would be there if I am in traditional Medicare, I'm responsible for 20% of the cost of the drug forever. There's no out-of-pocket max in, in Medicare Part B. Medicare Part B has been very good for our industry. Very good. And Medicare Part B in surveys scores extremely well. The people on Medicare Part B, it has great scores. People love it. It's the Part D out-of-pocket that's been so bad. But in Part B, there still is that 20% cost sharing that sure. a lot of people face. And, and it's not like Congress took that cost sharing on. And that's where I think we have some problems because people, some people have, who, who can't afford the 20% cost sharing. I mean, 20% cost sharing on a $300,000 drug is $60,000, right? Yeah. And if the typical Medicare beneficiary earns $25,000, dollars in Social Security, there's no way they have $60,000. So they're going, to, you know, they're going to borrow from friends or family or forego the drug. Or to second out the mortgage. Or second the mortgage, right? Yeah. Which is a huge social catastrophe. Yeah. So I think what we did with the IRA needs to be expanded to Medicare Part B on the out-of-pocket, right? So there are, you know, there's those two, there's the cost-sharing piece, which I think was very good. I also think that the general idea of sunsetting a manufacturer's ability to, you know, uh, keep building a patent estate around an old drug or a patent thicket. I think that general idea, you know, of saying, you know, we're not going to let you make this money forever and ever. We're going to sunset your ability to charge the high prices is a good one. Now, I don't particularly like the way they did it in the IRA. They say, you know, we'll sunset it at nine years if you're a small molecule drug, 13 years if you're a large molecule drug. Well, that's completely arbitrary, right? I don't know if you've been speaking to some of the industry people here. Some of our clients are here, and I've been having some quiet chats. You know, they're saying they're changing their investment behavior. They're actually reallocating assets away from the small molecules now, which is obviously was our red flag because this is going to have huge impacts. And if you think about drugs that patients can take at home, that they don't have to go to a hospital outpatient setting to get infused over. In some sense, you want to encourage the small molecule drugs. The other reason you want to encourage the small molecule drugs is that they actually go generic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a lot of fierce price competition for small molecules, and there's a lot less of that for the biosimilars. So in many ways, as a society, we want more small molecule drugs. Right, and so it's weird that we're squeezing the small man- molecule manufacturer sooner than the large molecule. Why do you think they did that? I think it's because with the large molecule drugs, the ACA does give the large molecule manufacturer 13 years of market exclusivity. It does that, and so they didn't want to cut that. And so, if you don't want to cut that, that's fine. But maybe what you should do is for both types of drugs, small and large, you set the sunset at 13 years. Well, that seems to make the most sense because that's roughly when most of them would be Mm. expiring anyway. Mm. I don't think anybody would have a problem with it. Now, Peter Kolchinsky has been very actively saying this. You've been saying this. Our firm has been quite out front. It's been a little lonely out there. (laughs) We're not getting a lot of vocal support. I think a lot of people are thinking this. Why, why do you think more academics, more researchers, more people who are going to be on the knife edge of this end, why, why are people so shy about coming out and talking about this, even in the VC community? Why do you think there's a, a reputational risk here for saying, hey, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, this isn't right? I am terrible, Dwayne, at crawling inside the brains of, of other people. <laughs> so I don't have a good answer for you. But I will say, just based on conversations that I'm part of, I think academics are just like everybody else. I think academics believe two things. First, 
they think that the principal problem in American healthcare is the challenge of insuring the uninsured. And I think they've just not kept up with the data. As a result of the ACA, as a result of COVID, basically we've lowered the uninsurance rate to the point that, you know, essentially anybody who wants insurance now in the United States can get zero premium health insurance in the United States. So there are people who aren't insured, but that's because they have not signed up. They have not signed up. It would be free to them. I think the second mistake that academics make is we think that scientific innovation is the result of serendipity. You know, oh, Alexander Fleming goes off on vacation for two days. He comes back on Monday morning and there's penicillin in a Petri dish. And the reality is, yes, serendipity really matters for innovation, but it's a terrible recipe for innovation, which is the whole reason we created patents, exclusivity right. periods, the Orphan Drug Act, R&D tax credits, the whole reason we invest in basic sciences. We don't want to leave you know, the discovery of a great Alzheimer's drug to serendipity. We want to steer it and accelerate it. We, and so, but if you live in this world where you think it's all serendipity then why would the IRA or tinkering with prices really affect innovation? Because right. your, 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 your baseline worldview is innovation comes from serendipity. When in fact, it's logical and it's just basically hard work and risk assessment. It's people putting capital at risk. Yeah, people put a lot of capital at risk. Look, and if it was all serendipity by now, we should have certainly cured malaria around <laughs> the world, right? There's a reason that last year you had sort of one clinical trial underway internationally for malaria, but about 2022 trials underway for gout. Why is that? There's much more money in gout than there is in malaria, right? Yeah. I mean, clearly, investment responds to incentives. It's not serendipity. What would be the most valuable drugs over the last five years that were curative? I mean, arguably, Savaldi, which cures hepatitis C 99.5% of the time, one of the most effective drugs that's ever been produced ever. Nobody can argue that that drug doesn't have value as a curative therapy. The reality is if you didn't use Savaldi and you stuck with pegylated interferon and then you had a liver transplant, which occurred in one of five cases over the next 10 years, I mean, just the cost per cure alone for pegylated interferon, given the fact it was only 45% effective, was more expensive than Savaldi. The reality is that drug was well worth all $80,000, regardless of the controversy around it, the $1,000 pill, yet it was hugely controversial. How are we going to get around a value-based assessment of a drug when, when you even have a reputable and valid value-based assessment? There's enormous pushback against it. Yeah, Dwayne, what a great question. I'll say, I want to say two things on that. First, I think, um, I think what people also forget is that the launch price of the Sovaldi franchise came down. Oh, hugely. Right, when competition entered. Yeah, Abby came up with their right. parallel therapy at forty-five grand, right. and boom, it dropped right. immediately, 50%. So that's one thing that people forget. The second thing that people forget is that the drug will go generic. Mm -hmm. And once it's generic, it is in the planet's armamentarium forever. Yes. So a thousand years from now, if someone were to contract hepatitis C on a foreign planet, we would probably still give them Sovaldi, right? Like, I don't think you're going to improve on a treatment that cures a disease in eight weeks. Yeah. I don't think there's anyone who's going to say, well, I can do it in seven. You know, that's not a good business model because you can do it in eight. That's not the end of the world. And so there's this social value to the medicine which is colossal, especially when it goes generic. Right. And it will go generic. And it will go generic. So I think when we are doing HTA, 
around the world. I think one bias that's in all the HTA we do around the world is we don't count the fact that when the drug goes generic, we will be getting the drug at a 70, 80% yeah. discount. Right. Lipitor now is essentially Correct. for free. Correct. I mean, Lipitor, by any stroke of the imagination, what, 20 bucks a month, it's right. free. Right. It's free. Right. And, you know, if, if we say, if someone says, well, Amitabh, a lot of drugs don't go generic. Well, that's a problem, right? And so then we should, <laughs> we should take on that problem. Which, which is sort of what the Inflation Reduction yes. Act was trying yes. to do, but it did it really ham-fistedly, unfortunately. There is a effort right now with the U.S. Patent and Trade Office to start using patents as a wedge to negotiate pricing. There's actually an effort for the USPTO to start emphasizing price as part of their patent evaluations. That seems like a slippery slope to me. Something obviously needs to be done. Do you have any concerns about USPTO trying to open up this box? I think it's a politically popular box to open. And I think there's a variety of academics who think it's a worthwhile you know, uh, engagement for them. But what that misses is, why do we have patents in the first place? Right. Right? I mean, so if we go back to 1790, and this is the first <laughs> Congress that passed that gave us the patent act, the logic was that, like, look, if a person or a firm needs to make a very large investment and the fruits of that investment are very risky, and that investment is sunk, meaning once you make that investment, you can't use it for something else. Nobody's going to make investments like that unless they're guaranteed some period in which they can earn profit were they to be successful. So right. in other words, the whole reason we came up with the idea of a patent was we said, we want to create this temporary monopoly that induces people to make those large, sunk, uncertain payoff investments. So now to bring price into it is undoing the patent. Right. Right? I mean, every monopolist since the beginning of time knows that you don't charge the highest possible price as a monopolist because every time you raise price as a monopolist, yeah, you get a higher price, which is good for your revenue, but you lose people who buy the medicine. Right. Right. So there's, a, there's an optimal monopoly price, which the monopolist can figure out. And that also goes back to your comment about these efforts of HR3 in many ways to put in a single global price. That's an extremely inefficient way to price. It's like a hotel or an airline. You don't sell one seat for the same price for the whole plane because you will never fill the plane. You need to be able to move on multiple points of the demand curve in order to be able to set. That's why hotel rooms, if you buy them early or you do non, uh, non-refundable, non you get a cheaper price, You know, depending on pri- people's price sensitivity. It, it's a bad way to distribute. Right. It does highlight, though, something that's not so great about the patent system. I mean, it is a very blunt tool. Right. Every invention idea gets 20 years of monopoly pricing power. And it's not clear that every invention that gets a patent needs 20 years of market protection. Some will need five. Right. Some will need 15. Some might need 30, but will only get 20, and so will never come to market. Correct. So it's a very blunt tool. Right. And I think thinking about reducing the bluntness of the tool, maybe on the back end through an exclusivity period, or maybe by sunsetting uh, manufacturers' ability to charge high prices after nine or 13 years, 
that is a better enterprise for Congress to engage in than for Congress to say, I'm going to tie this to the price. Yeah, but the problem is that's then this is a political issue, right? And that's a really hard bumper sticker slogan to to get done. We're going to chart. We're going to extend patent for orphan drugs so that people can get more orphan drugs. That's that's going to be a hard sell. Right. So I wouldn't do it through the patent system. I think we're stuck with the patent system we have yeah. forever. I think what you'd have to do is you'd have to do it on the back end. You'd have to say, you know, for orphan drugs, there'll be seven years of exclusivity for non-orphan drugs. It's five years. Yeah. So we're going to let the generics come in later. So that's the way we will do it. But everybody still gets 20 years of patent life. Yeah. Well, this sort of gets to some of the debates then around the accelerated approval as well. It's, mm-hmm. it's sort of a nice transition. Mm-hmm. We're here at an Alzheimer's conference, obviously. The elephant in the room is the CMS ruling six months ago that basically said we are going to require an additional clinical trial for an already approved FDA medication that targets amyloid plaques for amyloid beta monoclonal antibodies. We ran the math, modeled a three and four year delay, and it basically tanked the clinical developments that we're currently in from a return on investment perspective, put everything underwater. Are we essentially putting in place now with CMS and HTA process by default, de facto? I think it's worse than that because at least with the IRA, it's not like we're using any HTA at all right? with the IRA part of it, at least. Now, with CMS and the Adjuhelm decision, you're right. We're not negotiating the price of Adjuhelm. There, what CMS said was, we're not convinced. This drug is approved, but it was approved under accelerated approval. So we're not sure about the real-world evidence with this drug. Yes, it reduces amyloid. We want more evidence. And so we'll pay for the drug as long as you are enrolled in a clinical trial because by enrolling in a clinical trial, you're contributing to that evidence base. Which is going to cost 100000 per patient for with, after they've run a five-year phase three with 2,000 patients. They recruited 2,300. I mean, we're talking billions and billions and billions of dollars. But I think what is what goes in the other direction, though, is Medicare Part B has some bad incentives for manufacturers. And that's something that our industry doesn't like to talk about. Sure. In Medicare Part B, the government has to cover every FDA-approved oncology drug, for example. Well, what pricing power does that give the manufacturer? Colossal. Yes, but the drug has to be bought. And again, if we look at PCSK9, for example, which is a hospital-administered monoclonal antibody, you know that was a drug that ended up going head-to-head with um, a generic Lipitor, and PCSK9 was a marketing failure, even though it had 20 25% Correct, better outcomes. Correct, because it saw competition with the generic. Correct. But what if I have a drug which is novel? It's a great drug. I'm not saying it's not a great drug. Sure. I'm saying it's a great drug. But what does that mean? Does the price of a great drug, 50000 a year, 80000 a year, 300000 a year, a million dollars a year? You need to give the payer some ability to walk away from even a great drug because at some price, it's not worth it. And CMS doesn't have that ability right now. So what do we need then, in your opinion? So I think a better way to do it is I don't trust the government's ability to figure out was this drug worth it. Yeah. Right. I don't think the government knows how to do that well. It thinks it does, but it doesn't know how to do that well. <laughs> but but I think what you want is you want this to be a fairly vicious negotiation between a pair 
and the manufacturer. But a payer is different than a government payer, right? It could be a it could be a payer like a private health insurance company. If we, for example, took all of Medicare Part B and put it into Medicare Part D, just suppose we did that. Sure. Now the payers would negotiate the prices of Aduhelm and the PCS canines, right? And if they walked away from a drug unfairly, they would pay because they would lose patients. Patients would not want to be enrolled with that payer. So there would be some market discipline on the payers who are too cheap, too stingy. That gets us into the PBM issue then. You know, obliquely now we've sort of stumbled into PBMs. You know, and diabetes now, the industry is getting beat up brutally over this when in fact the PBMs are taking 70 cents out of every dollar in revenue right now in some classes. We had a situation using the PCSK9 example where uh, Sanofi and Amgen decided, okay, we're going to bilaterally, we're going to drop the price by 50%. This is a couple of years ago, 2019. United Healthcare wrote a letter that got leaked to the media. And what the letter said was, that's great, but we're going to keep our rebate, the money that we're retaining, the same for the next two years, basically 22 months. So the PBMs are sort of sitting there taking up an enormous amount of that revenue stream, 50 cents on the dollar now on average. Now, that doesn't necessarily qualify for all the oncology products because often a novel oncology product that's heavily effective has pricing power. Okay, fine. They can negotiate strongly. But if you're dealing with other multiple levels of drugs, combo treatments, the PBMs are definitely in the driver's seat. What do we need to do about that then? Because what that means is in any negotiation, the PBMs then are basically just going to be, we're going to be handing more and more revenue to the 100%. PBMs. 100%. Yeah. Look, but at the end of the day, let me say one thing. There are many aspects of the PBM industry that are broken. Yeah. We can articulate them and more importantly, we can fix them. But I would much rather manufacturers negotiate with a reformed PBM industry because the alternative is you're dealing with the United States government, Correct. which is the single largest payer in the universe. And right now, there's, there's, no, right. there's no discipline. There's the no system. discipline. So if the U.S. government said, I'm going to pay you COGS, cost of goods sold, plus 2%. Which they could. Which they could, right? Then that will be the price. And that's the United States government's ability to negotiate a monopsonistic price is much greater than the ability of the German government or the UK government to negotiate that law. But in many European countries, that is precisely the negotiating position they've been taking. And we've seen the evidence of what happens, and it's absolutely destroying the biotech sector in Europe. It is. But they, as long as the US government was around... <laughs> it's been paying, picking up the slack. But so <laughs> if the US government goes down that path, it really hammers innovation. Now, coming back to your point about PBMs, look... There are a bunch of bad business practices that go on in that industry. First, that industry is heavily consolidated. And so what you ninety know, percent is three three players. Three players, yeah, right? It's so crazy. so you, you need to kind of um definitely ensure that you don't need I think the optimal market size for a PBM is not as big as they've become. So that's one piece. Some antitrust authority would be there. The second is the PBMs um, don't, you know, they don't share in the rebates they make. They don't return that money to the health plans. They don't return it to the employers. Now, the employers are waking up to this. So more and more you start to see employers say to the PBM, I want that rebate back or I'll go with a smaller PBM that does it on a per member per month basis. Yeah, We're starting to see that innovation. That I think is very healthy. And we're starting to see health plans like Aetna merge with PBMs, 
right? Yeah. And so that's another way in which the plan is not screwed by the PBM's bad behavior because the plan and the PBM are now one. So a bunch of things have started to improve the PBM industry. And I think if, if I were redesigning what we need to do in Medicare Part B, I would say, look, let's just take it and put it into Part D. Yeah. It's an interesting idea. That's the first time I've heard that. It's, it's compelling because then you have all the market forces. But I, I also yes. agree with you what you said. A reformed PBM needs to be part of that. I do think yes. so. Yes. And I think where our industry goes wrong is the amount of belly aching it does about the PBMs just misses that if you destroy the PBMs, you're staring down, you know, the long barrel of, quote-unquote, negotiation with the United States. Government. Yeah, well, a single payer that's right. going to basically have complete market right. power. Right. So that was, a, I think, an incredibly myopic thing to do. We should have been focused. You know, people are worried about PBM. should try to reform the PBM industry, not get rid of the PBM industry. You need negotiation. I mean, I hate to tell our industry that, but you need <laughs> negotiation. Even with the monopoly price, you need negotiation, right? So if a, a company is charging the monopoly price, which they figured out is 100000 a year, it could still be the case that 100000 a year, while that's a monopoly price, at that price, the drug isn't worth it. Yeah, correct. Right? And, and maybe some other drug is better or some other benefit is better. Part of the problem now we have is if you're the second or third player and you've been the first mover, right. because of the nature of the rebate system, it's very, very hard, particularly if you're a small independent biopharma that may have a really hot product that's even better or superior to another product in the portfolio. I mean, just the limiting factor of the ability to get on the formulary by the PBM to, in order to maintain market share, it's really hard to do that. There needs to be some way to pry that open in some Correct. way. Correct. And it might be worse than that, Dwayne. It could be that in addition some of the larger manufacturers, as soon as they see a biosimilar enter, what they do is they give really generous rebates. Oh, yeah. They crank, they crank the right. price and then, and, yeah. And so what that does is that discourages biosimilar entry, which in the long run is bad for society because it violates the contract that our industry has with society. It was not the spirit of Hatch-Waxman, let's Correct. just say. <laughs> Correct. So we never anticipated a world where the PBMs would be as large as they are and where companies would find it. Look, I want to be in a world where companies are immensely profitable by bringing great drugs to market, not a world where companies are able to play rebate shenanigans and be highly profitable that way. The problem with reform... And this is just simple politics and dollars and cents. What we have now, 95% of the people in Medicare are beneficiaries of the rebate because the sick people are essentially rebating to the non-sick people to keep premiums low. That's currently how the mechanisms work. So there's a political reality here. The, the problem is the premiums for the non-sick people will probably go up. 100% they'll go up. And no one's talking about that. Look, I mean, I think the fact that we have cost sharing on, say, insulin or a hypertensive drug, that's crazy. Who's overusing their insulin? On the other hand, enter the Inflation Reduction Act. It caps the price of insulin. It caps out of pocket. So that's a cheer and a cheer. What's going to happen? Utilization of insulin and antihypertensive drugs will go up. But the plan is no longer able to use cost-sharing as a way to discourage, you know, to get a better deal. And so the only thing it can rely on is to either raise premiums, which is what it'll do, yeah, or 
use prior authorization and utilization management. And one of the things that I don't know the answer to is which one is worse. <laughs> Cost sharing is terrible. But is prior authorization worse or is it better? I mean, I tend to think it's better than cost sharing because cost sharing really hammers people who are poor. Yeah. But how, you know, with prior authorization, maybe prior authorization also hammers people who are poor because, you know, they're just not able to really nag their physician to fill out that 27-page long form. I don't know the answer to that. If we're looking at the Inflation Reduction Act as it stands now, I mean, there are a lot of problems with it. What would you like to see happen in reforms to the Inflation Reduction Act if we could get something through Congress to sort of band-aid this or patch it a bit? I think the first thing I would do is bring some parity to that nine years versus 13 years, just to 13 years for everything. Yeah, because the risk, obviously, what concerns a lot of people making biologics is that 13 is going to become nine. Obviously, yeah. that's the problem. Yeah. And it's it screams that that could, a cynical Congress could do that. And that concerns me. So, so that's one. I think the other one is actually probably going to be very unpopular. But I would, I would certainly think about the challenges of cost sharing in Medicare Part B yeah. and actually expand the act in some way to protect Medicare beneficiaries from cost sharing for their infusion therapies and the therapies that are administered in a physician's office. That again means more spending. The oncologists, of course, act as wholesalers and yeah. they don't like that either. Yeah, so they, they're, yeah, they're going to be, be a bunch be... of battles to fight. The deal you make with the industry is to say, listen, you, the industry, are worried about us, the government, just dictating prices. So what we're going to do is we'll put Part B into Part D so that you continue to negotiate with the plans that you don't like. But at the end of the day, the plans are much smaller than we, the United States government, <laughs> is. And so, you know, it's going to resemble much more of a market transaction, market negotiation than a dictatorship where the United States government just gets whatever price it wants. So those would be the three steps that I would want to outline in the in the very long run. But in the short run, what worries me a lot is if you look at some of the hiring that CMS is doing, if you look at the Inflation Reduction Act and, and you say, look, the Inflation Reduction Act requires Congress or the health HHS secretary to negotiate the price of 20 drugs, it's not clear that to negotiate the price of 20 drugs, you need to hire all the people that CMS is currently hiring. What do you think they're doing? I think they're getting ready to expand the act well beyond the 20 drugs, which is industry's worst nightmare. I mean, they will have a workforce that is much larger than all the people that ICER hires. We did our analysis like CBO did it. We, we restricted to 20 drugs. Now, Avalier had a very different approach. They said, okay, if we take this by the letter of the law and we really expand this, you could do pricing controls initially at 10 drugs in 2026. But then those drugs have dropped. Then when you look at the next 15, it would probably be an additional 15 above the 10 you've just dropped. So now you've actually dropped 25. And very quickly, you get yeah. up to 100 drugs right. if you do it that way. Sure. Now, that's quite cynical. And we thought, and fundamentally, by the time you get to the 50th or 60th drug, you've captured 80% of the revenue drop. So the marginal impact starts getting really quite de minimis. So really, it's the, it's the top 50 that drives most of the cost. And beyond that, it's just marginal. But the reality is, those are huge impacts then. Right. And those huge impacts mean that effectively, we're putting up a big billboard saying, don't make drugs that will benefit the United States government. China last year equaled the US in early stage venture backed startups. First time that's happened, 91 startups. It's a big, big potential problem. 
So I don't know about the China-backed VCs. I know that one of the things that I see in the data that I've looked at is the best basic science research and the most impactful translational science research is disproportionately done in the United States. Yes. Unless the Chinese are investing in American scientists, and maybe they are, but if they're investing in their own scientists, their own scientists are very good, but they're nowhere near the quality of the basic science workforce that we have in the United States. Today. Today. Amitabh, I'm sure we could go on, and we'll probably go on for several hours This tonight. is a lot of fun. We should do this again. Absolutely, we will. Let's definitely get together in six months after the new Congress and see where things are. Let's do a follow-up to this, Amitabh. My you pleasure. Thank you. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Jonathan Ballin. Our project manager is Gwen Laughlin. This Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2022.